Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. On today's show, we see out the year with Michael Peterson and his new book, Boyfriends. Michael Peterson is a prize-winning Scottish poet and author. His second collection, Oyster, was a collaboration with Scott Hutchison of the band Frightened Rabbit. Peterson has been named a Canongate Future 40 was a finalist in 2018 for Writer of the Year at the Herald Scottish Culture Awards and was awarded the John Mather Trust Rising Star of Literature Award and won a Robert Louis Stevenson Fellowship. He also co-founded Noi Riki, a prize-winning arts collective known for producing cutting-edge shows across Scotland and the world. And today we're going to be talking about Michael's new book, Boyfriends. Michael, welcome to Little Atoms. Thank you very much. It's an absolute privilege and a pleasure to be on these digital airwaves with you. So tell us, I guess, what the idea behind the book is, or more specifically, I guess, what inspired it? So the book is a love letter to friendship in all its incarnations. It's to the friends here, there and elsewhere. The friends that we love to excess, yet still not nearly enough. The friends we promise to see more of, but just can't find the time or the excuse to do so. And the friends that we think about all the time, but maybe are not in orbit or in life cycles with anymore. And in particular, it's a celebration or a call to action to celebrate the friends that are temporally no longer with this world, the friends that have passed on, but still to find and mine the joy in those friendships. So, yeah, very much a homage, a paean, a love letter to friendship. So you write about, I mean, in the main, about your friendship with Scott Hutchison, who, as I said, you collaborated with on, on your book, Oyster and was a longtime friend, but also you talk about some historical friendships. So what we'll do is we'll talk about some of those historical friendships first and then come on to Scott later. Before we do that, in the main, in describing these friendships, these are male friendships, and you talk about them, you describe them almost as, as one would short love affairs. And I wanted to talk about writing about friendship in that style. Yeah, I mean... I have always been emotionally involved in friendships. I've always felt that they were some of the most, if not the most important relationships that punctuate our lives. You know, we will love and lose more friends than any other category of human relationship, unless we're a very, very prolific lover. 
And I just feel like there was such a niche in terms of celebrating friendships, in particular male friendships. Uh, I wanted to explore the algebras of friendships that had been handed down through peers, through older relatives, the the sort of working class stoicism within male friendship that had seeped into my boyhood growing up and all of the fumbles that I made when I was overly vulnerable, overly emotive, um, I guess just gooily spilling out here, there and everywhere. So it was really about addressing some of the stereotypes in friendship alongside celebrating some of the abnormal yet life-affirming friendships that have narrated my life from that perspective. And I do look at them as love affairs. A lot of these friendships are really short and really intense, but I didn't want to be embarrassed to celebrate them. I didn't want to be embarrassed to still be thinking about these friendships 10 years later that were of my teenage years and were very much no longer not in my day-to-day life and not in a way that even required satisfaction. I celebrate a lot of friendships and give homage to a lot of friendships that I don't necessarily want back in my life because I'm not that version of myself that was in that friendship. So it would be insolent of me to expect them to be that version of themselves. We've both moved on, but I didn't want those to be viewed as a failure because they were these ephemeral, transient, beautiful beings. And they buoy me up still. They edified me. I learned from them. They're part of my sort of human structure. And they're part of what made my future friendship with Scott and the other friends that I still carry with me so successful and so cherishable was the failures and the lessons that I'd learned from these previous friendships. So I wanted to still have permission to celebrate those without any shame or any trepidation and just to continue to explore the way that they buoy me up. When the book first starts, we find you in a tower in Northern Ireland. Tell us about what that was and why you were there. Yeah, so that place is called the Curfew Tower in Cushendall, in Northern Ireland, northeast of Belfast. It actually sits right on the coast in this beautiful, craggy seaside town full of folklore and myth. Also, Famously, a lot of Game of Thrones was filmed around there, so a lot of the fantasy buffs are uh, drawn to the area, myself included. Um, But it's actually owned by artist, provocateur, former KLF founder Bill Drummond. Now, he curates or he invites people to curate residencies at the Curfew Tower, year-long residencies. Mostly it goes to visual arts organisations, but we were the second literary organisation with Noriki to be invited to curate it for a year. I think Seamus Heaney Centre for Poetry had done it before. And looking at the calendar year in this beautiful coastal seaside town, I thought, well, as the founder of this organisation, it would only be right for me to take one of the tougher months of the year. So I elected for the stunning summer month of July. Um, I thought, you know, I would do the philanthropic thing and accept the month of July. Uh, in this residency and then we chose lots of different writers to go out there at different points in time Selena Gordon, William Letford, Claire Askew, different writers we sent over and you get the keys to the tower for a full month. Now I was due to go in July and I knew that months and months in advance uh, and I guess I was going there with the raison d'etre the premise of writing a third poetry collection 
my last one I'd done with Scott, he'd illustrated it. I'd done the poems and we sort of toured it all over the UK and South Africa and the world beyond. Um, so it was high time I wrote another one of those if I was going to turn it into a passport for us to travel again. So that was the premise of going there. However, in May of 2018, after like a really beautiful road trip with Scott and, and Holly McNesh, my partner, another writer, we lost Scott. He didn't come back from that trip. So I found myself opening the front door of the tower a couple of maybe six weeks later, which in a way was an emotional lifetime, but was also a complete evaporation of time, a real blur of an epoch that left me opening the doors of this tower in shock, sort of tumultuously emotional, grief-stricken, sort of wrung out and bamboozled about how to be on my own, how to work out who I was without this seminal friendship, let alone produce a poetry collection. So I arrived there under very different auspices than I intended to. Um, And I knew it was going to be tricky to start writing. I knew I was going to find myself after a period of being surrounded by consoling faces and some of my favorite people in the world all checking in on each other, buttressing each other up during this ferocious period of time where we were all stomaching and wrestling with this huge grief which was sweeping over us all. I knew it was going to be a, a risky time to be on my own in solitude for a month. But as a writer, you fight for this. I'd cleared the decks for a long period of time. It's so rare to have these three periods of time to just concentrate on your words. And I knew also this would afford me the ability to just steep in my favorite memories of the friendship with Scott and really invest in cauterizing that wound. And very came very slowly. I started writing, I guess, precociously, little diaries about what I'd been up to during the day, coastal walks and visiting barbecues and making friends with Zippy, the local butcher who owned this brilliant shop called Kearney's Fleshers, who was keen on taking me to a hurling match. And then very slowly, after doing those diaries and I guess exercising that literary muscle, I started to be able to write about instances with Scott. And the first period I went into was immediately the road trip that we'd just been on that he never came back from because I didn't want to have my mind cover over that and also I wanted to separate that almost surgically from the brutality of what came next of Scott leaving of Scott dying of Scott choosing to leave this world by his own volition but Juxtaposing that was this brilliant, beautiful, ebullient, effervescent road trip that was three or four of my favourite days with this human that I'd known for a number of years. So I thought I had to write that on my own terms for my own benefit. And it was such a cathartic uh, experience to steep in those memories again, to steep in the humour of them, the silliness, the smuttiness of them, and just the sort of luminous fun of those few days. And that sent me off on a massive scavenge. I sat and every time I felt morose or forlorn or that the violence of grief was taking hold of me, I would try and negate it or at least shimmy past it and wind out its way, undulate out its path by writing about one of my favorite memories. And I just picked these memories at random 
on a sort of scale of emotion from Scott. And I explored all of these different memories. But as that archive of our friendship grew, I started to be reminded of other seminal friendships from my boyhood, from earlier on in my life, like you mentioned earlier, and thought that it was really crucial first to try and understand who I was as a human being, who I was as some a sentient individual offering my friendship, proffering my friendship to Scott when we first met. And of course, I was this jumble cell, this hodgepodge of the different friendships that came before me. I was the ingredients of the success and the failure and the shame and the embarrassment and the beauty and the joy of all of these previous friendships. So I ended up setting off on a scavenge to almost by almost sort of put the microscope on my life via the lens of the friendships which have inhabited me. So I want to talk about just one of those other friendships then. So you, you talk about growing up in Edinburgh and school and friendships at school. You go to Durham University for a few years. And then when you're back in Edinburgh, you have a, a rather intense friendship with a guy called Rowley. So tell us who he is. Yeah, I mean, he sort of appeared in my life like a Sid Barrett-esque romantic poet. The funny thing is, we'd actually known each other at school or known of each other. We were in the same year, but Portobello High School, where I went back then, was a huge school. At one point, it was Europe's biggest state school. It was this sort of eight-story skyscraper that looked like it was plucked from a like dystopic Soviet movie, as opposed to actually being you know, a functioning edifice of education but it did have its positive elements. And there weren't some really incredible individuals there at that point in time. And I knew all Rowley, but we manoeuvred around each other. Um, I guess I was going through a survivalist period of high school, which was all about, you know, keeping yourself to yourself, sticking to the corners, exit and entry, avoiding the crushes. And Rowley just wasn't really on my social scale, but I was obviously always interested with him. And then years later, we bump into each other in this almost euphoric experience after a big night out during the Edinburgh Festival, spilling back to these parties, all, I guess, all sort of juicy and drunk from the night before, still lolling in the, the spiritedness of it, uh, all lens flare as the, as the light started to fade and then come back up again. And Rowley just burst into this party we were at, sort of, antagonistically, provocatively, but with a really, you know, humble and beautiful sense of well-being. And I, I think I describe him in the book, and it felt like that as he just gushed glitter into the room. And there was a sort of effervescence to him, this sharp, adroit humor. And immediately, almost fell for him in that way. Immediately, I knew that we were going to become friends fast. And immediately, I knew that I didn't want to be without him in this a small period of time. So it felt like, you know, love at first sight from a friendship perspective. And it came that way. We came very close, very quickly. I just finished at Durham and then was moving to Nottingham to do a postgrad. Rowley moved down there with me. He absorbed himself into my life. A lot of the moments over that period of time, I sort of forget whether they belong to me or belong to him because we were so inseparable. And we pushed ourselves together with a an intensity that I guess was all-encompassing and in the longer term was unhealthy. It felt a bit whiff-nail-esque, you know. It was a, um, certainly an indulgent period of our lives where we were romping around town. 
but it just was so emotionally intense um, that it felt like friendship at all costs. And in fact, I alienated myself from some of my other friendships because of the emotional intensity that we had for each other and how that shone around us. Uh, and eventually, through all of these moments, the friendship comes to its fruition when I moved down to London. And I think, um, well, it's like that moment at Withnail at the end. I've got something to do. And Rowley is on a different trajectory at that point in time. And I'm not going to be able to do it. And weirdly, that was starting a career as a, as a lawyer, which I knew was going to kamikaze drop into the ocean if me and Rowley stayed together in that fashion. So we almost had to extract ourselves from each other. And there was a lot of pride involved in that and a lot of heartbreak. So we pulled ourselves away from each other. And, you know, I love them. I think about them all the time. I, I sometimes will the universe to push us together, but mostly I'm comfortable with the fact that we had this beautifully intense friendship that was very, very much had its own vocabulary. It had its own cadence. It had its own music. That it was all belonging to these versions of ourselves that we were at that point in time. And I send them every book I've ever written. And that's all the contact we have now. And in a way, I think that says, I think that's forlorn in a sense, but much more than that, I think it's beautiful. It's like being, you know, it's like your favorite song coming on the radio, um, but not wanting to go see that band live again, just being reminded how invested in them you were at that point in time. So, yeah. It is a very unusual, but under-celebrated, under-synthesized friendship. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary.
You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Danny. Today I'm talking to Michael Peterson and we're talking about his book, Boyfriends. And Michael, let's talk about Scott Hutchinson then. So tell us who he is and where you met. So yeah, there's a lot of friendships in the book and I'm thankful to Scott for the scavenge he sent me off. And I found that a lot of those friendships were lost to me in some way, but still wanted to celebrate them. And so much of them drew back into the magnet of this friendship with Scott, which is the most love-filled, the most artistically catalyzing, the most life-altering friendship that I guess has ever pounded or comet shot into my life. And now we met right at the infancy of when I was running Noiriki. Scott is an artist and illustrator, but was perhaps best known as the frontman and songwriter of a band called Frighten Rabbit. Now, as we'd started Noiriki, Frightened Rabbit were on a much bigger upwards ascent. They were a bit more established by that point. And we were a bit of a grassroots literary salon that happened in Edinburgh on the Royal Mile and down a place called Trunks Close. And I'd heard this story about this singer that had this like beautifully poetic lyricism that everybody told me to keep listening to. But at that point in time, I hadn't listened to his music. One of the nights we were putting a show on, I think they were also putting a show on around the corner in this little club called Cabri Voltaire. And something had went wrong. Something had went ski with. And um, they double sold the tickets somehow. And so only half the audience could get into the show and half the audience was going home disappointed. Um, now, I'd heard this lead singer was not was a little bit upset about that and was, you know, understood how much people had invested in being there, all the plans they'd made. And he'd went out into the street to this throng that had never managed to go in and serenaded them for like 30 to 40 minutes, singing different songs and performed this full acoustic version of the concert, explained what he was doing to the audience inside who waited patiently because they knew they had a lot more to come and just created this really beautiful dynamic that became this special and period and special night that a lot of fans and zealots of the band will remember and cherish to this day. And I just thought, what a great human being that was. And I'd never listened to a song of his at that point in time and then immediately went out and tried to book him for our night. And he got straight back and said that he'd love to do it and said something along the lines of, oh, I've heard of Noiriki. Never thought I was cool enough to be invited. Of course, he was much cooler than all of us and just had this real humbleism to him, which made him the, the brilliant human being that he was. And, and when he turned up that night, he sort of padded. He was following on from Liz Lockhead, who was the National Poet of Scotland at that time. And I guess Scott had maybe prepared a poetic, quite well-polished, but quite sort of maybe BBC live radio style set. And Liz Lockhead came on with all these savvy, smutty profanities. And Scott was like, well, I was going to keep it clean, but Liz has just set the bar a little bit high, and I think I can live up to it. And he just padded away from the microphone, walked away from it. I guess he was used to much bigger venues than ours, and began to croon and began to sing. And immediately, every song that came out of his mouth became savourable to me. Every lyric, every moment of that. And listening to him for the first time within that pool, within that what felt like a, a, a cathedral in a tatty old uh, performance space, starkly lit like a shit old classroom, felt like levitating. And I felt like as soon as we communicated that we were already friends from that perspective, there was a 
there was a backstory there, whether we liked it or not. And then I found lots of little cosmic coincidences. He lived only 15 seconds where I'm from where I had lived in Edinburgh. And then we just over that small period of time afterwards bumped into each other irrational number of times, smoking outside pubs in the local supermarket. And then it felt like, you know, some sort of aura of friendship was pushing us together. And so I volleyed into that friendship with everything I had. And Scott did the same. And we we did these collaborations together. He played Noriki many, many more times. So many times I can't count uh, his illustrations, bedecked some of our produce. And then me and him did a book together, Oyster, um, which was my poems and Scott's illustration. But more than that, it was a it was a testament to friendship. We did it together as a as a passport, as a sort of ticket to travel. When he wasn't doing big band stuff and I wasn't on a Noiriki run, we could take this to festivals and carve little holidays and time together out of it. So this book became a very special thing. It was emblematic. It was a trophy to our friendship, a monument forged from what we'd, the time we'd spent together and the desire to spend more time together. I found the version of the friendship that I was in with Scott is the most immaculate form of any friendship I've had. And I'm aware that I had to thank all of the other friends that came before him for that, alongside his enamorment, his brilliance. You talk about holidays and trips, and there's a book tour trip you talk about at quite some length where you go to South Africa. Tell us something about that trip. Yeah, I mean, I guess that's at the acme of um, our catalogue of using the Oyster book to travel. We got invited over to do a book festival outside Johannesburg called Nyrox in this like stunning part of I think it's called underneath it's called the cradle of humanity some of the oldest bones of humanity have been found under this piece of land and the illustrate uh, the exhibited all the illustrations from oyster in a gallery there we did an in-store we did some of the most interesting live performances I've ever done on these ancient bits of ground on the cradle of humanity and then driving from one of the sites to the next and a golf buggy through sort of desert style terrain. We had to skid to a stop as a herd of zebras pulled in front of us. And of course, we carved out a lot more holiday time than work time because that was the premise of doing this. You know, it was so Scott toured the band so dedicatedly and so intensely that these shows were work but mainly they were pleasure and of course we managed to find ourselves on a long animal safari in the middle of it docking lions and wildebeests and to our amusement many of the beasts were randy and we found our favorite wine that has ever touched upon my lips in one of the safari lodges that we both fall in love with from that perspective and it just was this incredible holiday that left our relationship full and embellished and vibrant and sort of saturated with love and at the end of it I remember we toasted to it and he said to me well we know one thing now Michael we're fantastic at a holiday and then we started to plot more from that point in time and it just felt the really paramount experience in my love letters my love history of friendships and I time travel there always and so you've already mentioned that you, you took a road trip to the Highlands and Scott joined you for a, the, the first few days of that trip. 
in May 2018. And then literally before you're finished on that trip, he takes his own life. And you talk about all this in the book. I don't want to rehash now what happened and, and the aftermath of it, but perhaps you could tell us something about writing this book in the sort of aftermath of that. Yeah, well, I guess, as I say, I was there six weeks later and I was definitely cauterizing a wound and writing through the trauma. And I wrote about all of my favorite memories before I wrote about the short period where we're searching for Scott, where we're not back for the trip and he's missing because it was such a small fragment. And a lot of people have said to me, oh, there's so little about death in the book. There's so little about anger or any of that for a book that has this heart-wrenching loss squat in the belly of it. And I think that's because Scott leaving this planet was just a moment. It was a day. There was a short period of time. There was the ferocity of him not being here. But when I went to reflect back on my friendship with him, I had years of brilliant memories. So to focus on the way he left this world would be disingenuous to the joy of the friendship. So it is a small fragment, a subjugated um, narration or exploration within the book is the way that he left. I have to discuss it. I have to tell people about it because it is so seminal. It is the big moment. It is the thing that changed this world temporally and set me off on this book about writing. But this is a book about celebrating his life and not about the way he left, but the way he lived. And just to finish it off, maybe on a, a slightly lighter note, um, you've already alluded to this a couple of times in the interview, but of all of the stories you tell in this book about Scott, all of the amazing facts about this brilliant, artistic, musical, melancholy man, the one I found most amazing, and literally, if this had been a work of fiction, something that I, I would have found difficult to believe, is that this man had never seen with Mel and I. No. And so tell us I, something about why that film is so important to you. I mean, I watched it at university with another one of the friends who comes into it, David Sparrow. And I think it's one of the most beautifully drafted scripts ever written. It is Oh, the most incredible story of a male friendship where the two characters have become inseparable each other. It's friendship at all costs. It's indulgent. It's debauched. But it's beautiful. It's a love affair between these two friends, which ends terribly and ends tragically as they try and pull themselves apart from it. And I, even though we'd never seen Withnail and I, I think there's a Withnail and I quote for nearly every occasion. And I think I'd probably over the years of our friendship, quoted every fragment of that script to him at one point in time. And we were obviously going to watch with Neil and I together for the first time in the Curfew Tower, drinking a bottle of Mahoodie. It's a beautiful memory that never existed that I steep in regularly and can almost magic to life. But how someone of that intelligence, wit and artistic precision could have avoided with Neil and I for that period of time befuddles me even to this day. So I've been talking to Michael Peterson. We've been talking about his book, Boyfriends, which is out in the UK from Faber. Michael, thank you so much for taking the time to share it with me. Thank you so much. It's been a privilege. This episode of Little Atoms was produced, presented and edited by me, Neil Denny. Little Atoms is hosted by Acast and published by 89up. The show is broadcast on Mondays and Saturdays on Resonance 104.4 FM. Thanks for listening.
Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.